Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you once again that we have this opportunity to gather together in your name and to come together to praise you and to express our love for you and to enjoy the fellowship of our brothers and sisters, also redeemed by the blood of Christ Jesus. We thank you for the time that we have just had to bring to you our praises of song and gladness and, and love. And now this too is our fitting worship that we should give you our attention to the proclamation of your word. And though these words are so very familiar to us because we hear them every Christmas, we invite you to speak to us in a fresh way. For we ask this in the name of Jesus, for your kingdom and for his bride, the church. Amen. This past week, Kevin Lloyd shared with me a really funny Christmas story. Um, it was written by Max Lucado, and it appears in his book, Because of Bethlehem. It's an open letter that husbands have written to their wives. <clears throat> it reads, Dear ladies, we know you mean well. We know you think you know best. But enough is enough. We've suffered in silence for too long. Having shared our pain with one another, we husbands hereby step out of the shadows and open our hearts. This year, as you shop for our Christmas gifts, please don't buy us what we need. We know, we know we need to smell better and look nicer. We know you like us in warm pajamas and new underwear. But we don't know what to say when we open these gifts. How can you fake enthusiasm over house slippers? How can you look happy holding a nose hair trimmer? <laughs> We've lied long enough. For the, sake, for the sake of integrity on Christmas morning, we offer this guidance. As you look at any potential gift, ask yourself these questions. Can he play with it? Does it swing, bounce, shuffle, cast, or roll? Can you find a trigger, a grip, a ripcord, or a stick shift on it? Does it consume oil or dog food? Does it have a big screen and a remote control? If it does, buy it. Doesn't, doesn't matter that he already has one. This is no time to be practical. When considering an item of men's apparel, ask yourself, is it brown and green and rain resistant? You can't lose with a garment that is. Realizing that many women prefer to shop anywhere but the gun department, we offer these two suggestions. Does it make him look cute? Does it make him look like a hunk? If clothing makes him look cute, drop it immediately. If it makes him look like a hunk, buy two. When all else fails, ask, can he eat it? The question is not, would you eat it, or do other humans eat it, or is it edible? Don't occupy yourself with such trivialities. The question is, can he eat it? Anytime the answer is affirmative, consider yourself on safe ground. We close, uh, in closing, we extend this offer. If you'll buy us what we want, we will do the same for you. Without revealing any details, we will tell you this. A large vacuum cleaner company has offered us a group discount. <laughs> And you thought we were insensitive. No need to thank us, your husbands. Well, at Christmas time, you know, we give each other gifts, and giving each other gifts is a reflection that God has given us the greatest gift of all, His Son. It's also um, we're, we give gifts to one another in imitation of the gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus. Uh, we. We give, we give a lot of attention to the gifts that we give each other, but now this morning I want to ask what gift is fitting for us to bring to God? You know, what is, 
What does God want? What does God need? What does God take pleasure in that we can offer to him? Uh, let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. And I won't help you find that. I bet you know how to find Matthew. You know, every Christmas time, you know, we hear the nativity story, and we always hear it from the Gospel of Luke. This Christmas will be no exception, because Luke's account is the most complete. It includes the most detail. It's the most um, background, has the most players in it. I mean, you got shepherds and angels and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and Anna and Simeon. There's a lot of players in the Christmas story. Um, it goes, Luke goes on to talk about Mary's purification, about Jesus' circumcision on the eighth day at the temple, the sacrifice that was being made of, of the pair of uh, turtle doves. But isn't it odd that Luke does not mention anything about the Magi or about Herod uh, killing the infants? And make, Luke makes no mention about the famous star of, of Bethlehem. And so we have to ask ourselves, why, when Luke is being so careful to include everything with such great detail, why does he omit the story about the wise men? And it's probably that even though they're important to our nativity, the reality is they weren't there. They weren't at the nativity. In fact, we have this, these little statuesque here with the three wise men. They weren't there. You don't know, man. You weren't there. So we have a lot of rather uh, absurd Christmas traditions and guesses about these three wise guys around the Lord's cradle. And they're real popular in Christmas art and in Christmas traditions. But most of what we know about them is just not true. It's just it's a fabrication. Uh, we don't know that there were three. We don't know that they were kings. Um, they're said to be representatives of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so consequently, since those three sons are the progenitors of all the human races, one of them is typically portrayed as an Ethiopian. Uh, we don't know, but history, tradition, uh, Christmas fantasy has given us their names too. Casper, uh, Belthazar, and Melchior. Uh, that's all fanciful. That, that completely uh, out of the Bible. We, we don't know any of those things because for sure they weren't there at the nativity. Um, so take your Bibles now. We'll turn to Matthew 2, 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So before us today is the question, who are these guys? Who are the Magi? And just exactly what are these three kings doing in our nativity set at our Christmas time? Well, let's talk a little bit about the background of the Magi. They're from the Persian Parthian Empire, um, which is east of Palestine in the area formerly ruled by Babylon and then later by the Medes and the Persians. These Magi are actually descendants of the Medes and the Persians. They were unusually capable and gifted scholars. Um, they had risen to great power of leadership in the Middle East by this time. Uh, they were, at the time of Christ's birth, the, the ruling body of the Persian Empire. They, they weren't the kings. They were the, the king makers. They were the ones who decided who, were the, who the kings were to be. Now, these magi had been around for, for a very long time, even from the time of Babylon. Remember Daniel, he's one of the the Jews that's captured from Jerusalem and deported to Babylon. And after all of the stuff that happens, Daniel becomes the chief of the Magi. So Daniel himself, though a Jew, is uh, the leader of the, the Magi. Now, there were a lot of Jews that were deported during the Babylonian captivity, and only some of them came back 70 years later. A lot of Jews remained in Babylon. The Magi would have known a lot about the Jewish religion. They would have had a lot of information. They would have been greatly influenced by the Jews, and especially by Daniel, who himself was the chief over the Magi. They certainly knew the Jewish scripture, and they were very personally acquainted with Daniel's prophecy. So they had come to understand that there was going to be coming a great king. And they knew that he was coming into that part of the world because they were familiar with Daniel's prophecy about the king who was coming and would rule over Israel. So they're very powerful in the time of Christ, uh, in, the, in the Persian part of the world. Um, not only were they the king makers, but they were also the ones who appointed the judicial body. They were the ones who appointed who were the, who were the judges. Uh, remember in the book of Esther, the Magi reappear there. Uh, they're, they're the ones that appointed the judges in, in, in Esther. So they dominated the culture in terms of their authority. They, were, they had a vast knowledge of astronomy, of astrology, of natural history, of architecture and agriculture. They, they were great scholars. Now, we, we imagine that on some balmy Christmas night, there's three guys that show up on camels and they kind of sneak into Jerusalem on this on this warm evening. We have this picture in our mind. That didn't happen. They probably did not come in on camels at all. They were from Persia. They would have ridden in on fine Persian horses. And we have no idea that there were three of them, except that there are three gifts mentioned here in the text. But in all probability, um, estimates go from dozens to hundreds of these magi who show up on horseback probably accompanied by the Persian cavalry and maybe as many as a thousand foot soldiers. These guys didn't sneak into Jerusalem unnoticed. They would have been um, very, people would have been very attentive to the fact that an entire army had come in. Worse than that, Persia was at war with Rome. Palestine was occupied by Rome. Herod was appointed by a Roman king. 
these guys represent a very powerful enemy force that is, appears in their territory. So again, um, they're not three guys sneaking in on a warm, on a warm balmy evening as, as uh, someone sneaking into an oasis. These guys represent a force that, that's potentially hostile to them and particularly hostile to Herod. And it's little wonder then that when Herod hears what they're up to, he's a little bit nervous. And so is the entire city when these guys show up. They're, they're, they're very powerful men. They would have been a very powerful force. But it's curious to everyone why these godless Gentiles are there in the capital city poking around for some political king. Now, Matthew's account um, brings the, the, the arrival of the Magi into Jerusalem. But again, Contrary to popular conception, these guys are not looking for Herod. They make no attempt to get an audience with King Herod. They know that the king that they're looking for is a newborn king and not one that the Romans have established as king over, over Israel. So if anything, if they knew about Herod's reputation, and we've talked about what a nasty guy Herod was, if these magi knew about Herod's reputation, not only would they have not wanted uh, interview with him, but they would have probably avoided it. But imagine then, you know, they, they're poking around Jerusalem and they're asking people, where is he who is your newborn king? And all they're met with are people shrugging their shoulders. What are you talking about? And, and it, must have, it must have been a, a very curious thing to them that here they are in the capital of the Jews looking for the Jewish king and nobody seems to know what they're up to. Word obviously traveled rather quickly around Jerusalem that they're there, and the people are, are wondering about these magi. How is it that these godless Gentiles are here in the Jewish capital looking for a Jewish king so that, according to them, they could worship him? Um, this, the worst part of all is how could those who are spiritually elite, you know, here's Jerusalem where the, 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 the best teachers of Israel are, where all of the best records are kept, and nobody seems to know what they're talking about when they ask for where is the newborn king. Now, verse 2 adds another detail to us, which, which has baffled scholars for the last 2,000 years. They say, we have seen his star rise. If you have the NIV, it says we've seen the star rise in the east, and we've come to worship. Well, what exactly is this star that the Magi see and follow to Jerusalem? What, what is this star? Well, it is obviously a reference to the star of Jacob that's, that's uh, in Numbers uh, 24, verse 7. But particularly, we want to know what phenomena are they observing that they identify as the star of the newborn king, the star of Jesus. And what, what is that star? Now, before we get into that, let me say two things. One, I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know what the star is, and anybody who says they know, they don't know. Secondly, it might help us to understand that these wise men were astronomers and astrologers. They're very comfortable with looking at the stars, looking at the heavens, and noticing when things change. And to them, it was a very common belief that when a particularly influential ruler was to be born, that there would be a, a sign in the heavens, some sort of an astronomical event. So I'd just like to point out, what, if God was trying to get the attention of non-religious 
people who were astronomers and astrologers about the arrival of his son, what better way to do that than something in the heavens which draws their attention? And they would get it. That would be something that was meaningful to them. But two, if you were a Jew not accustomed to looking at the stars and the planets changing and things moving around and conjunctions and stuff like that, you wouldn't be uh, aware that there was a, a, an event in, in the heavens which indicated the coming of the king. But back to the point, what exactly is the star? Um, the word that's used here for star is the Greek word aster. So we get our word asteroid. And it means anything that's, that's in the heavens. Any light in the heavens is an aster. Just like we say everything's a star, even if it's a planet or a, or a, or a meteor or a, a comet, you know, we might refer to it generically as a star. So that doesn't really help us to know what the star is. But not to be discouraged at the point yet, there's a lot of guesswork as to what the star was. And there are four main theories. The, the first main theory about what the star of Bethlehem was was that it was Halley's Comet. Now, unfortunately, the nearest appearance of Halley's Comet would have been 11 BC. That's too early for the nativity. So we, we rule that one out. And the second one was that it was a supernova. And that's interesting because a supernova can suddenly appear. It can be super bright, super phenomenal, and it would certainly attract a lot of attention. They're, they're unpredictable. They, 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 they happen, and they're, and they're very obvious. But there's no record anywhere that such a supernova took place any time around the birth of Christ because, like I said, they're, they're quite rare. Probably the most popular theory is that there was a conjunction of planets, and among this is the, the biggest theory is that in 7 BC there were three planets, Jupiter, Mars, and Saturn, and they all converged at this particular time with this very rare conjunction which takes place only every 125 years. But 7 BC is too early for us. Um, so it's probably not that conjunction. Another conjunction, a little closer for us, would have been the conjunction of Jupiter and Venus. That happens in 2 BC, but Herod dies 4 BC, so it couldn't be that, because Herod's still there to kill the infants. So it has to happen before Herod dies. But this conjunction theory, again, like I said, it, 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 it makes the most sense if you're looking for a natural explanation because they, looking at the stars, would notice this and they would have been um, quite pleased at this, uh, if it was a conjunction at this rare astronomical, astrological con conjunction. Um, again, it, but it wouldn't have been uh, noticed or important to the Jews. But Again, the problem with that is that the nearest one we could find that fits happens in 7 BC, and that's too early for the nativity. The fourth option is that whatever it was, it was supernatural. It's not a natural phenomenon. God caused a light to take place. And um, some say, well, you know, there's a lot of occasions in the Bible where God um, has his appearance the Shekinah glory, remember when he's leading the Israelites out of Egypt, there's this pillar of fire. This is a, not a natural phenomena. And so perhaps the star that they see is, is a light that God places there, but it's not a natural phenomena. It is a supernatural phenomena that God put there in order to guide these, uh, 
these, these uh, magi. Also, there's something particularly, particularly unusual about this star. So these magi are watching, and they see this, whatever they see, this light, this star. Let's just assume it's a supernatural thing here for a minute. And they begin to connect it with the prophecy in Daniel about the coming of Jacob's star, the king. And they have to have time to organize, identify this, the conjunction or whatever the star was, organize a, a trip and travel from Babylon area all the way to Jerusalem, and they, 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 they mount this expedition, but somewhere along the line, the star disappears, because while they're en route, they're not following the star anymore. And that's why when they get to Israel, they think, well, where do we go now? They've identified it as the star of Jacob, the star of the newborn king, but they have to go to Jerusalem to inquire, because that's as close as they can get. Uh, the star has disappeared. They go to Jerusalem to inquire, uh, asking the, the people and asking the, 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 the scholars there, where is the residence of your newborn king? They don't know. The, the residents there do a search, and they come up with, you know, there's a town six miles south, Bethlehem. That's where the king's supposed to be born. And they leave Jerusalem. They're on their way six miles south to Bethlehem. And where are we? Verse 11 or 12 the star reappears and goes before them and leads them not just to the town, but to the very house uh, where Jesus is. And then there's two words of significance to us here. The word, the word where Jesus is a toddler. Um, the word is not infant here. Um, the word is, is toddler, uh, piedon. And Jesus is no longer in a house. A barn. He's no longer in, in a place of, of where the animals are kept. This time he's in the oikion. He's in a house. So he's probably about two years old and he's in a house. The Magi were not there at the nativity. So in eagerness, um, the Magi find the king of kings. And it's interesting to me that they, they find him and they're eager to... Um, bow down and worship him, or verse 10 or 11. But also curious that, that while they're so eager to seek him out and eager to worship him and greatly rejoice at the coming of the reappearing of this star, that the Jews aren't. The, the, the Jewish elders aren't down there with them. The wonder of the Magi is, is inescapable. God reveals to a people who are not his covenant people about the coming of the king. And they come and worship him while God's own people seem rather indifferent and apathetic about the whole thing. The arrival of this star of the, and the arrival of the Magi should not have caught God's people by surprise. Like I said, here is the temple. Here are the, the scriptures. Here are the the records, they, they would have known that. They would have known, in fact, they revealed that they did know not only when the king was to be born, but where the king was to be born because they end up telling the, the Magi in Jerusalem or in Bethlehem, you'll find the king. And it, it's also interesting that the Magi not only know when because they see the star, but they know when because of 
the prophecy that Daniel had given them, the Jews should have known that as well. If you look at the, the book of Daniel, you don't need to, I'll read it for you, but it's Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. Daniel says this, uh, and it's the angel Gabriel speaking, No one understand this, from the issue of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, that's the word here for Messiah or Christ, the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end will come like a flood. So there is a very accurate prediction about when to expect the Messiah that these magi knew about that the Jewish elders also should have known. So the time between the issuing of this decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the time when the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one appears was to be seven sevens and 62 sevens. 69 sevens is 483 years. So Artaxerxes decreed the rebuilding of Jerusalem in 457 BC. That means that the angel Gabriel, through the prophet Daniel, pinpointed the, the, the coming of the Messiah, well, more specifically pinpointed the Messiah's declaration that would be at his baptism at 26 AD and his crucifixion in 29 AD. Now we work backwards knowing how old Jesus was and we come to 4 BC, which fits the timeline perfectly because Herod dies that year in 4 BC. But isn't it curious that the wise men knew that and the people of God seem to have completely let that escape their, their attention. So the wise men come and they, they, they come and worship Jesus. They, they offer him the, their gifts but I don't think Matthew is particularly interested here about the identity of the wise men. He's not particularly interested in the personage of the wise men at all. He is, however, interested in what gifts they bring. That's the point of the story. And any literary critic would look at the story and see that the gifts are mentioned last here. They occupy, therefore, a place of prominence in the writer's mind. And, the, and what do these magi of unknown number, what do they bring to the Christ child? They bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So it's, that's the clue. That's what's important here in the story. They bring gold. Gold is the, the, the metal of kings. And it's presented to Jesus as an acknowledgement of his right to rule. Well, it's often been pointed out that the gold was very useful because right after this, God tells Joseph, take your family and head to Egypt because Herod's going to kill all the boys. So you stay there until I call you back because out of Egypt I will call my son. He would need finances to make this trip and to stay in Egypt for any length of time. So, yeah, that's handy that he had gold for, for such an occasion, but that's not the point. The point here is that gold is, is offered to a king. The wise men are giving gold because they're acknowledging Jesus' right to rule. They're acknowledging him as a king, not just as an important baby. Now, it's easy to see why frankincense is being offered. Incense was also an important part of religious ceremony. In the Jewish uh, offering system, frankincense or incense was mixed with, um, the, the, with oil that was used, first of all, for the anointing of the priest, but it was also mixed in with the offerings, particularly the, like the grain offering, the meal offering, the Thanksgiving offering. So the, the incense was mixed with those things because it was a 
it was a form of, uh, of purification or a symbol of purification. Curiously, incense was never uh, added to the sin offerings. So it was only offering to these thank, only mixed with the thank offerings and the meal offerings, not the sin offering. Again, it's a symbol of, of purity. So again, the gold speaks of his kingship. The incense speaks of the perfection of his life of purity. So what does the myrrh represent? Well, myrrh was uh, used in embalming, and it was an important item in, in commerce. And we get a little bit of idea about the quantity of myrrh um, that was, that was uh, used. Remember when Nicodemus is, is uh, embalming Jesus, uh, John 1939, uh, Nicodemus procures 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe to embalm Jesus with. So there's a sure quantity of myrrh that, that traded in commerce would have been a significant uh, amount. And again, it's, it, was, it was bought and sold for, for funeral arrangements. Don't you think it's a little bit odd? I mean, you picture yourself as a, as a king and you're, you're, you're the newly, uh, or not ordained, uh, what do you do when you become a king? You get, uh, what is it? Yes, your coronation. So let's say you're a newly coronated king and, and your subjects come and bring you these gifts. One of your subjects from one of your, uh, one of your subjugated countries comes and he offers you, your, your highness, king of kings, I offer you this gold. And you're going, yeah, because that's what I do. I'm a king. And then the next one brings, I offer you this very valuable incense, the frankincense, because because of purity. You are a great king. You are, you are pure. You, you only have other people's. And then the third guy comes and says, I brought you a jar of embalming fluid. You know, <laughs> you know think it a little bit odd, right, that somebody would bring. You know, we think of myrrh because, because we think, you know, it's, a, it's, it's a, a very fragrant thing. But that's not the point here. The point is it's embalming fluid. And we would th- why would the wise men, the magi, bring to the baby a jar of embalming fluid, you know? because I think they're recognizing, again, through the prophecy, this is not just something that comes to them out of the air, but looking at the scripture, they recognize that this king comes for the purpose of suffering. And that's the whole point of Psalms 22. Remember when Jesus is on the cross in Matthew 27, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That comes from Psalms 22. This is scripture that these magi were familiar with. Um, from Isaiah 53, we, this is a very familiar one when we talk about um, Jesus' death where surely he took, upon, took our, our infirmities and carried our sorrow, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So they understand that part of this child's destiny is more than just being a king. It is to suffer and die. And so what an appropriate gift, this jar of embalming fluid that they're bringing to acknowledge not only is he a king, but to acknowledge his purpose in being a king in the first place. So you have these three phenomenal gifts, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, gold for royalty, Incense for purity, myrrh for suffering, but all of these are simply modalities of what they're doing. What are they doing in offering these these gifts? They're bowing down and worshiping him. That's the one thing that honors God. It's not the stuff that we bring. 
It's that we bow down and worship him, worship him as the king of kings. You know, the world has a lot of false ideas about what happens at Christmas. You know, for some people, I may be exaggerating a little bit, but for some people they think of Christmas as being, you know, a warm family time where we honor motherhood and babies. I'm, ex I'm exaggerating, but you, you get the point. And other people would say, well, Christmas is the time where, where we offer something to God. And, of course, we have this really stupid song, The Little Drummer Boy. I hope you never listen to that song. As if you have to give something to God, and if you don't have something to give, then play your drum. Because you know, maybe if you play the drum, the little baby Jesus, little sweet pound eight baby Jesus is going to look over and smile at you. As if he needed anything that we could produce. But it begs the question, then what do we bring to God? Because he doesn't need anything, but we do. We need a savior. We need redemption. We need someone who dies in our place. It's, it's us that have need. And I think the better Christmas hymn from Charles Wesley is, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. Now if you understand that, you understand exactly what Christmas is all about. You understand that we come to him for salvation. And all that we can offer to him is our worship, our thanks. Now, having said that there's nothing you can bring to Christ, we still come to him in worship, and we come by faith. And just as these wise men, these magi, brought these three gifts as expressions of their faith, as expressions of worship, and not because of their intrinsic value, but just to show a way that they bring their, their worship, I want to invite you to do the same thing. Bring your gold. Bring your gold metaphorically I'm speaking, bring your gold to Jesus and, and recognize that he is king. If he's king, then he, by definition, has the right to rule over your life. And like we were talking about last week that so many of you took offense at, come before him and say, you are king and I am your slave. I am your servant. You have the right to rule in my life. You are my master. Direct my life. Lead me. In whatever way that pleases you, bring into my life whatever you want to, because you're king. So we bring him our gold in our worship, and we bring him our incense, which, which, which signifies a purity. And we come before the Lord and we say, you know, I want to acknowledge right up front that I am not pure. I am not holy. I am not clean. I need the frankincense, the incense the, of, of purity. Our prayers are sometimes referred to as the incense that rises before God as a, as a fragrant aroma. We, we, we acknowledge, really, I mean, that the, the most holy, honorable, pure, altruistic thing that we can do is mixed with our own evilness. You can stand up here and you can speak like I am right now, and I want to bring the word of God to you, 
And that sounds very altruistic, but I'm doing it because I want you to like me, which is robbing God of the glory. See, we have to acknowledge that we're not pure, not even in the purest thing that you can imagine yourself doing. And we need Jesus to come into our life and filter or bring before God, having, having burned away the dross and presenting to God what is pure from what we do. We need Christ as the frankincense in, in our life to bring that offering which is acceptable and, and pleasing to God. And finally, we come with our, our myrrh. Again, the Magi bring the myrrh there as a symbol of Christ's death, and I invite you to bring, metaphorically, the myrrh of your life to acknowledge not only has Christ died for you, but at some point, and you confess this in your baptism, you declared, I have died in my old life to my old self. And in the coming out of the water, I am being resurrected to new life. I'm abandoning the old life. I've died to that person that I used to be. So we recognize not only Christ's death in the myrrh, the embalming fluid, we recognize too our, our own death. And we say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I deserve the consequence of, of my sin, which, which is to be barred from your presence forever. But when you look on my sin, see Christ dying in my place. When you look down at my, my filthiness, see the blood of Christ sprinkled over me and, and then place me in your presence forever. You, you've taken my sin. Now I ask you to accept me as, as your child forever. At the end of the day, there really is only one gift that we can bring to God, and that is worship. And we offer him our worship through our metaphoric gold, frankincense, and, and myrrh. But really, it's the heart of worship that pleases God. It's the heart of worship that God takes delight in. And so today, as we remember this Christmas Sunday, we remember the, the baby in the manger. Like the Magi, we, we bow down and we worship, and we praise God for this newborn king. Let's pray. Father, this Christmas season, while we enjoy the fellowship of our family and we enjoy the comfort of the lights and the trappings of Christmas, uh, we also acknowledge that it is a reminder that you are king and that you are pure and that you came to die for our sin. And the fitting gift that we bring to you is our heart's response of just saying thank you. And we believe your word. We believe you. And in our hearts, we bow down this day as the Magi bowed down before the child and acknowledge him as King of, King of kings and Lord of lords. Be rightfully Lord of my life today. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.